Dear colleagues, dear journalists, I welcome you to our press conference on COVID-19 today, Monday, 7 September. I am Fadela Shaib, Communication Officer at WHO Headquarters in Geneva, moderating this press event. We have with us, as always, Dr. Tedros, the WHO Director General, along with Dr. Mike Ryan, WHO Executive Director of the Emergencies Program, and Dr. Maria von Kerkov, our technical lead for COVID-19. Um, they are in the room. In the room also we have Dr. Maria Angela Simao. She is our Assistant Director General, Access to Medicines and Health Products and Dr. Bruce Aylward, Senior Advisor to the Director General who leads on the ACT Accelerator. Uh, we will also be joined by Dr. Sumia Swaminathan, our Chief Scientist. As usual, we are translating this press conference in the six official UN languages plus Portuguese and Hindi. We will be posting the Director General remarks and an audio file of this press conference on the web as soon as possible. The full transcript of this press conference will be ab available later on on the web. But now, without further delay, I would hand over to Dr. Tedros for his opening remark. Dr. Tedros, you have the floor. Thank you. Shukran, shukran Fadila. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. COVID-19 is teaching all of us many lessons. One of them is that health is not a luxury item for those who can afford it. It's a necessity and a human right. Public health is the foundation of social, economic, and political stability. That means investing in population-based services for preventing, detecting, and responding to disease. This will not be the last pandemic. History teaches us that outbreaks and pandemics are a fact of life. But when the next pandemic comes, the world must be ready, more ready than it was this time. In recent years, many countries have made enormous advances in medicine, but too many have neglected their basic public health systems, which are the foundation for responding to infectious disease outbreaks. Part of every country's commitment to build back better must therefore be to invest in public health as an investment in a healthier and safer future. In fact, there are many examples of countries that have done exactly that. Thailand is reaping the benefits of 40 years of health system strengthening, a robust and well-resourced medical and public health system, allied with strong leadership informed by the best available scientific advice, a trained and committed community workforce with one million village health volunteers, and consistent and accurate communication have built trust and increased public confidence and compliance. As you know, Italy was one of the first countries to experience a large outbreak outside China, and in many ways was a pioneer for other countries. Italy took hard decisions based on the evidence and persisted with them, which reduced transmission and saved many lives. 
national unity and solidarity combined with the dedication and sacrifice of health workers and the engagement of the Italian people brought the outbreak under control. Mongolia acted very early, activating its state emergency committee in January. As a result, despite neighboring China, Mongolia's first case was not reported until March, and it still has no reported deaths. Mauritius has high population density, with high rates of non-communicable diseases, and many international travelers, which meant it was at high risk. But quick, comprehensive action initiated in January by Mauritius and previous experiences with contact tracing paid off. Although the Americas has been the most affected region, Uruguay has reported the lowest number of cases and deaths in Latin America, both in total and on a per capita basis. This is not an accident. Uruguay has one of the most robust and resilient systems in Latin America, with sustainable investment based on political consensus on the importance of investing in public health. Pakistan deployed the infrastructure built up over many years for polio to combat COVID-19. Community health workers who have been trained to go door to door vaccinating children for polio have been utilized for surveillance, contact tracing, and care. There are many other examples we could give, including Cambodia, Japan, New Zealand, the Republic of Korea, Rwanda, Senegal, Spain, Vietnam, and more. Many of these countries have done well because they learned lessons from previous outbreaks of SARS, MERS, measles, polio, Ebola, flu, and other diseases. That's why it's vital that we all learn the lessons this pandemic is teaching us. Although Germany's response was strong, it is also learning lessons. I welcome the announcement by Chancellor Angela Merkel over the weekend that her government will invest 4 billion euros by 2026 to strengthen Germany's public health system. I call on all countries to invest in public health and especially in primary health care and follow Germany's example. Tomorrow, the review committee of the international health regulations will begin its work. The international health regulations is the most important legal instrument in global health security. As a reminder, the review committee will evaluate the functioning of the IHR during the pandemic so far and recommend any changes it believes are necessary. It will review the convening of the emergency committee the declaration of a public health emergency of international concern, the role and functioning of national IHR focal points, and will examine progress made in implementing the recommendations of previous international health regulation review committees. The names of the members of the committee were published on WHO's website yesterday. Depending on progress made, the committee may present an interim progress report to the resumed World Health Assembly in November and a final report to the Assembly in May 
next year. The committee will also communicate as needed with other review bodies, including the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, IPPR, and the Independent Oversight Advisory Committee, IOSE, for the WHO Health Emergencies Program. Finally, today is the first international day of clean air for blue skies. The pandemic and the measures taken in many countries to contain it have taken a heavy toll on lives, livelihoods, and economies. But there have also been some unexpected benefits. In many places, we have seen a significant drop in air pollution. We have been reminded of how starved our lungs have been of clean, unpolluted air. We have had a glimpse of our world as it could be. And that is the world we must strive for. Ultimately, we're not just fighting a virus. We're fighting for a healthier, safer, cleaner, and more sustainable future. I thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Tedros. Uh, I will now open the floor to a question from the press. I would like to remind um, the, the journalists that you need to raise your hand. Just use the raise your hand icon in order to get in the queue to ask a question. Also, uh, remember, we have a large number of you in the queue, so please limit your questions to uh, one. We will start uh, with a journalist from Africa, um, South Africa Broadcasting Company. Sophie, can you hear me? Sophie? Yes, I can hear you. Uh, my question is directed to uh, Dr. Ryan and uh, uh, Dr. Tedros. Uh, some few weeks ago, you took a decision to send uh, WHO officials or scientists to come and help South Africa when numbers were really uh, rising. We are told now it looks like uh, the numbers have stabilized. What's your assessment? And are they still in South Africa? What has been their role? And uh, what have you learned from uh, their reports? Uh, I think, uh, I'm sure they did send some reports in terms of what's happening in the country. Dr. Ryan? Yes. Well, first of all, uh, our gratitude to the government of South Africa and, and the health system in South Africa for uh, accepting uh, the WHO's role in, in, in supporting and advising uh, South Africa on its response. And it's, it's really good news that the number of cases has stabilized and is now dropping in South Africa. But uh, let me be clear that that is not down to WHO. That is down to the hard work of frontline workers in South Africa, the cooperation and commitment of communities and the leadership uh, of the government. Uh, in terms of the, the team on the ground, and many of the team who are on the ground have come from other African countries, uh, and really has been about sharing experiences, about getting communities on board, about improving surveillance, distributing surveillance deeper uh, into community levels, uh, in 
increasing uh, protection and training of health workers uh, and ensuring that hospitals and health facilities don't become epicenters of disease. So the, the lessons learned and the, the knowledge exchange has been, has been, has been excellent. Uh, and in many ways, South Africa reached out to WHO, not through weakness, but through strength, in recognizing that it had a complex outbreak on its hands, uh, and not that it needed the help of WHO, but what it wanted to do was be able to to work with WHO to identify areas in which uh, things could be done better. Uh, South Africa has a strong health system, very strong laboratory system, very uh, proud history in diagnostics uh, and uh, proud history in vaccination. So uh, I think also a lot of the, some of the work has been looking at preparation for down the line uh, and how a country like South Africa, again, can prepare itself for potentially delivering a safe and effective vaccine when, uh, when that comes uh, through the pipeline uh, in the coming uh, months. So uh, I think that's uh, the more general overview. We'd be very happy to do a specific debriefing uh, with journalists on the South Africa mission and the findings of that, uh, and particularly with our colleagues in uh, the African Regional Office and Dr. Chidi Mueti, the Regional Director. So we'd be very pleased if, if particularly journalists based in Africa would like to have a special session on that. We'd be very pleased to, to organize that with our colleagues in Brazzaville. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. Dr. Tedros? Yeah, thank you. Th thank you, Sophie. Thank you. Very nice to hear your voice. Uh, I, I fully agree with what uh, my general Mike said. Um, actually, South Africa's request uh, to work with WHO was from, a from a, um, an angle or uh, side, or size or side of uh, strengths. Um, we really appreciate uh, humility in, in leadership. Um, while doing their best, and even without WHO, they can uh, do well. Uh, asking to work together and asking for support shows uh, the humility of the leadership, which is very, very uh, important. And we were very humbled, actually, when we were asked. Actually, the decline started even before we were asked to uh, support. And not just stabilizing, actually, from the figures we have, if you take the number of cases, as you know, July, the week of July 20 was when it, it had the highest peak, around 83,000, more than 83,000 cases uh, per week. And now in August 24, the week of August 24, that's the last week, it's now uh, 15,000 cases per week. This is a significant reduction. Uh, but not just the number of cases, uh, the, the most important uh, indicator is actually deaths. And the number of deaths, if we take when it reached its climax, the August 3, uh, more than 2,000 a week. Now, in August 24, it's actually 994, August 24. So uh, South Africa is doing its, its best. Uh, we know it's very, very complicated, uh, but it's doing its, its best, and we're very glad to partner and send our colleagues uh, there to, to work with. And it's an honor for us to support any, any country. And with the current trend, uh, we hope to uh, further uh, push it to a decline and further uh, control uh, the pandemic. But I would like uh, to use this opportunity to thank the leadership of the uh, uh, President, uh, President Ramaphosa, 
uh, not only in South Africa, but in the whole continent by helping uh, to develop the continental strategy, uh, one continental strategy, and helping the, ca the continent to move, uh, to move as one. And, and, and of course, uh, the other things he's, he's doing to help not only South Africa, but the whole continent. Thank you so much. Thank you, DG. Thank you, Sophie. Now we move to Mexico, to Cancun. Uh, we have with us Polina Alcazar from Incadena News. Polina, can you hear me? Hola, si me escuchan? Yes, please go ahead. Hola, gracias por recibir mi pregunta. Les envío un saludo desde Cancún. Eh, personas que ya pasaron la enfermedad y esperaron el tiempo indicado para regresar a sus trabajos. Pero el ramo hotelero, los trabajadores que atienden al turismo, regresan con el miedo a ser infectados por segunda vez. La doctora Clarisa Etienne de Pajo advirtió sobre la transmisión del virus cuando viajan al extranjero. ¿Saben cómo se ha comportado la enfermedad en estas tres o cuatro personas que se contagiaron ya por segunda vez? Gracias. Thanks, Thank sorry. you, Paulina. Um, Dr. Maria will, uh, will take this question. Thank you. Sorry, Fidela, I was, I was listening for the translation. Thank you for our translators. Um, so thank you very much for the question, Paulina. Um, the question is about uh, what we understand about reinfection. Um, so let me first start with what we know about what happens when somebody is infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, when somebody is exposed and somebody is infected with this virus, their body develops an immune response, an antibody response, which develops a week or two, sometimes a little bit longer after that infection. And that antibody response um, provides some protection to that individual, and it protects them against reinfection. What we're learning about right now, and there are many studies that are underway, really excellent studies that are following individuals over time, looking at how long that antibody response lasts. First of all, how strong that antibody response is, depending on the type of disease you experience, whether you have uh, asymptomatic infection, whether you have a mild disease, or all the way through severe disease. And we are seeing that people, even with asymptomatic infection, still develop an immune response. What we need to better understand how, is how strong that is and for how long it lasts. Um, there are a number of studies that are underway that are following individuals, the same individual over time. Um, and there are some very promising results from these studies that are showing that the antibody response lasts, it stays strong for a certain number of months. We're only eight months into this pandemic, and so we haven't followed uh, individuals for many, many, many months. Um, so we don't know how long that, that uh, robust immune response lasts. We do have some case reports of individuals um, who have appeared to be infected a second time. Um, there are a couple of case reports that we are aware of, uh, ones that are, have been confirmed by full genome sequencing, which essentially they had a sequence at the first time the person was infected, and then they did a sequence again at the second infection, or presumed second infection. They've compared those two sequences, and they see enough of a difference to say this is a new infection. Um, there's an example from Hong Kong. Um, and there's an example I've seen in a preprint from the U.S., and there are a few other examples, a handful of other examples, a small number from a couple of additional countries. Um, in those individuals, what we are looking for is what type of an immune response did they have 
on their first infection, if that was even measured, and then at the time of the second infection, did they have measurable antibodies? And I think that's really important for us to really understand, to see if that immune response lasts, because in some individuals, an immune response may decline. But again, we do need to put this into context. You know, out of, out of more than 26 million cases, having some case reports of reinfection tells us that this is possible, but it doesn't tell us what's happening at a population level. We have examples of it, and so we're following this over time, and we're working with labs um, to determine looking at that full genome sequence to see if there's a second infection. Um, so we do know that it's impossible, but there are only a few case reports that have been reported to date. Thank you, uh, Maria. Uh, we will now move to, I believe, a new journalist joining us today, uh, Leroy de Souza from Mint, India. Uh, de Souza, can you hear me? Hi, uh, can you hear me? Yes, very well. Go ahead, Hi. please. Uh, it's Leroy, but anyway. Uh, so the thing is, uh, I wanted to understand about the COVAX facility. Um, who is paying uh, for the COVAX facility? Is it only the developed countries or is it also the developing countries? And I'm asking this specifically with regards to India. Okay, uh, I, uh, can you please tell me if uh, India has come forward to join the COVAX facility and contribute funds towards it as part of the agreements? And do you want India to play a more proactive role in participating in COVAX? Dr. Bruce Elward will take this question. Thank you, Leroy. Thank you very much for the question, Leroy. Um, in fact, uh, 170 countries have now come forward in a fantastic demonstration of international solidarity and cooperation to try and end the, uh, end the acute phase of the pandemic through the working together in the COVAX facility. This includes 78 what we call self-financing countries, but as well as 92 countries that would be eligible for assistance through the COVAX facility. Um, India is certainly eligible, like all countries uh, in, in, in the world, to be part of the COVAX facility, and discussions are ongoing in that regard. Um, we, from our side, of course, would welcome very much the participation of India as a full member in the COVAX facility, um, both in terms of of, uh, its extensive experience in, in, in vaccines, extensive experience in working together on the global scene in terms of childhood vaccination, other vaccines. India is an incredibly important player, um, and we're very much welcome to be part of the uh, COVAX facility. At this point, as you will be aware, the COVAX facility is still evolving, and then the final dates actually for confirmation, final binding confirmation in terms of participation of the facility is on the 18th of September. So discussions and negotiations are still ongoing with a broad number of countries in that regard. Uh, Dr. Swaminathan would like to add something. Just to add to what Bruce said, I think India is in a, in a unique uh, uh, situation because obviously of the um, very strong manufacturing capacity uh, in addition to the large population that would need to be covered by vaccination program. So, um, so India is in discussions with the COVAX facilities, very much you know, going to be part of the facility, both as a supplier of vaccine doses to the facility, but also as a recipient 
of uh, vaccines. And as you know, the advantage of being part of the COVAX facility is that you have access to a very broad uh, array of vaccine candidates because the facility is investing in a large number of candidates trying to accelerate both the development as well as the manufacturing so that you have at least a few winners in that pool, which uh, would then obviously need to be scaled up and distributed equitably uh, to countries across the world, whether they are self-financing and paying for their doses or whether they're receiving it through the global uh, AMC facility. Um, the other challenge that countries need to start thinking about now is how the delivery of these vaccines is going to happen. This is not a childhood vaccination campaign or immunization campaign. This is going to be very different. Uh, it's going to be vaccinating adults, certain high-risk groups and vulnerable groups. And this is going to be um, different from what's been done in the past. It's going to be a challenge for countries, particularly those with large populations. And so a lot of thinking is happening both at the global level as well as at the national level with the national uh, vaccine task force that's been set up in many countries, including in India, to really think through these issues and start building and investing in the systems that are going to be needed, whether it's human resources, you know, whether it's supply chain and cold chain, uh, logistics, syringes and needles, the training, uh, as well as the databases that would need to be put in place. So, so yes, I think we, we all have to learn from each other and, and, and help, uh, help each other uh, to, to develop those, those systems. So on the one hand, we have, of course, the vaccine doses that would need to be procured and distributed. But then how are they going to get to the right people within the country in a fair and equitable and ethical manner? Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Swaminathan. Now we will move to uh, Michael from CNN Opinion. I don't want to misread your name, but let me try it. Busior Kiv. Is it right, Michael? <laughs> uh, very good, Fadila. I'm glad you haven't forgotten. <laughs> uh, greetings uh, from British Columbia, Canada. And um, look, I, I hope I speak on behalf of all of us when I salute you all for the extraordinary media outreach you've been doing. Uh, it's extraordinary, and it's been a very long emergency, so I salute you. My question is about uh, faith in public health agencies. Um, a former CDC head said recently that the COVID-19 virus responds to science and not to spin. But my question is, when the public becomes confused by public health messaging or stops trusting its advice, or when the public health agency, such as the CDC, is seen to be politicized, where does that leave us? Or how much more difficult will it be to fight the virus to the ground? Now, I don't want to put you in the position of criticizing a member state, but as you know, the CDC has been the gold standard in so many <laughs> fights of epidemics. So I just wanted to put that to you because the importance of uh, public health messaging, uh, rather the trust is so important to everyone. Thank you. Mike. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I think, well, first of all, uh, you, did, you did mention the CDC there and uh, again, uh, greetings to our colleagues there. And, uh, and it is true that uh, uh, all, uh, all great nations invest in their institutions that guide and frame policy for, for citizens. It doesn't matter if you're in, in, in India or, or in Brazil or in, in uh, the European Union or anywhere. You'll see many countries are measured 
by how they invest in their institutional policy platforms that allow good decisions to be made. And that doesn't matter if it's economic decisions, health decisions, education decisions. Uh, good decisions are based on having the best information, processing that information in a way that leads to policies that drive the best outcomes for citizens. It's not just true of science. Governments listen to evidence, governments listen to science, uh, but governments also have to implement policy. Uh, and there is a gap between sometimes the pure science and the actual policies that work. And that's where a government has to operate and be accountable for that translation of science into effective, affordable policy that allows a society to move forward with trust that the government is doing its best in the interests of people. No one expects governments to be perfect. And certainly no one expects politicians to be perfect. Uh, but uh, the reality is everyone is expected to make the best effort based on the best interests of citizens, based on the best evidence. And that, in that sense, institutions that govern science and that translate science into policy and that ensure that the best possible uh, drugs, the best possible vaccines, the best possible strategies are put in place to contain disease are extremely important. Their independence is very important because citizens must be convinced that they're giving their evidence based on the benefit uh, uh, and the, um, uh, the advantage of, of, of ordinary citizens. So yes, it's really important that such institutions are independent all over the world. It's really important that governments listen to that advice, uh, but it's also important that governments have the space to implement policy uh, that is based on that advice, but not exclusively based on that advice at all times. Uh, uh, and therefore, I think, uh, yes, more and more governments, and there are many, uh, you've mentioned the US, there are many fine institutions in the United States and in other countries that have for decades and decades been world leaders in generating evidence that has benefited not only American citizens, but citizens all over the world. And we trust that those institutions will continue uh, to perform in the way they have on behalf of US citizens and the rest of us around the world in the coming months and years. I think Maria would like to add something. Yeah, very briefly, um, just, just to come to the, the part of your question around the challenges of science and SPIN and, and in this situation that we're in. I think, as Mike has said, many public health agencies are being challenged. WHO was challenged. Um, but I think what we try to do, and we are an evidence-based organization, as you know, we are rooted in the science. Our role is to consolidate, to review to reach out, to gather information from our international networks, which exist, existed before COVID-19, but are now focused on COVID-19, um, looking at surveillance, looking at epidemiology, seroepidemiology, mathematical modeling, vaccine, infection prevention and control, et cetera, et cetera. What we do is we reach out to experts that are all over the world that have frontline experience dealing with this pathogen. Um, so that that knowledge can be shared, you know, faster than any peer-reviewed publication that can come out, any report that can be generated, so that we are learning, constantly learning about this brand new virus that didn't exist eight months ago. Um, and so one of the things that we do, and you've heard us speak a lot about how we develop guidance, how guidance is developed based on evidence, based on practical experience by frontline workers, by people dealing directly with this virus, um, through observational studies or labs or whatever that may be, and consolidating that into practical evidence-based guidance. And I think that's our role. 
and that's the role of USCDC and the role of many public health agencies is to consolidate and put that out. Now, we try to be very clear in our guidance, which is focused on reaching decision makers and reaching uh, ministries of health and people that are taking the decisions to implement. We try very hard to make that clear and concise and, and uh, readable and actionable. We sit here and we do these press conferences. We do lots of different information products and we're surrounded in a room with many different uh, communications colleagues and risk communications colleagues to get the information out to different audiences because we know when we speak in scientific jargon that doesn't always translate to the individual um, and to say, what does this mean for me? We don't always get it right and we know that. Um, we also rely on journalists, we rely on you to report the information in a balanced way and not to sensationalize it to get the headline, to not confuse the general public, and you're doing that. And we need journalists as partners to help us get that information out as well. Because as you say, there's a huge amount of information that's out there, it's too much, it's this infodemic. It's too much information and our brains are really not meant to absorb all of that. So how can we get it out clearly? to get the right information to people to know what do you need to do? What do I need to do to protect myself, protect my family? And I think all of us have this role to play in this, whether it's the scientists or the international agencies or the national agencies, it's the journalists helping us get it out in the general public, it's all of the different information products. And, and we're learning, you know, we're, we're doing this as best we can. We don't, as I said, we don't always get it right, but we are all trying to save lives. And I think with that in mind, um, and with the science on our side, um, we can continue to do that. Um, and as science evolves, as science grows, this is a positive thing, we will continue to get that message out. And we know that you will hold us accountable to making sure that it's clear. Thank you, uh, Maria. We will move now to Gunilla von Hall, Swedish journalist uh, based here in Geneva. Gunilla, can you hear me? Gunilla? Okay, we will come back to Gunilla later on. Now we can move to uh, a journalist from BBC Africa, Roda Odiombo. Roda, can you hear me? Hi, can you hear me? Yes, perfectly. Go ahead, please, Roda. Uh, so my question can be answered by either Dr. Ryan or Van Kerkhove. Um, is a, I'm just wondering with uh, so many unknowns about COVID-19, is a corpse of a patient who has died from the disease still infectious? I'm asking this because Kenya's health ministry is in the process of changing uh, its burial guidelines on grounds that the body is not infectious. Thank you. Maria? So I, I can begin. So... Um, in fact, we've just uh, updated our guidance on the management of, of dead bodies uh, from, from COVID-19 um, and issued guidance on the safe uh, preparation of the body, um, not only for infectious diseases, but also to be culturally sensitive, religiously sensitive, and, and just sensitive to the fact that an individual has died, um, and, and the safe management of that in terms of the appropriate types of uh, personal protective equipment that an individual needs to wear when they prepare the body. It depends on the type of 
preparation that is being made for the body. Um, this, is a, this is a virus um, that spreads through, through these droplets or through these infectious uh, small particles, um, mainly through the respiratory route. Um, but there are other ways that you can come in contact with the virus through touching of, of contaminated uh, materials and, and contaminating yourself. Um, but there's safe ways to be able to do that. So we've just recently reissued uh, updated guidance on that, and we can make sure that we send that to you um, so that you have access to specifics within that guidance document itself. Thank you, Maria. Uh, we will move now to Di Young from Xinhua. Can you hear me? Di Young from Xinhua, can you hear me? Uh, yes, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, perfectly. Go ahead, please. Okay. Thank you for taking my question. China has had no local infections for the past 20 days, as all cases were imported and have been quarantined right away. The government is staging an award ceremony tomorrow for some individuals and organizations for their outstanding performance in fighting COVID-19. Would you mind sharing some of your thoughts on this? Thank you. Thank you. A question for Dr. Ryan? Yeah, um, well, uh, first of all, I'm not aware of the ceremony, but uh, uh, our uh, deepest uh, congratulations go to the frontline health workers in China who've, uh, and the population who've worked together uh, tirelessly to, to, to bring the disease to this uh, very low level. It's taken a long time uh, after you know, a horrific start in, in Wuhan and uh, a terrible toll. And almost, I think, all provinces in China have experienced disease. Uh, Bruce and Maria were there. They can maybe speak to that experience. But, there's, but a huge uh, partnership between communities, uh, scientific institutions, public health institutions, and the government, uh, uh, and a lot of cooperation, um, a very sustained commitment to getting the job done. So uh, we, we, we congratulate the front frontline workers and the communities in China for having uh, reached uh, such a successful outcome. But as we've learned in other countries, as all of us have learned, uh, it's not over anywhere until it's over everywhere. And as you said yourself in your question, uh, China continues to import cases from outside. So there is no room for complacency. Uh, 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 and as normal life returns in many countries, and especially in, in China, there's always the risk that uh, disease can flare up again and sporadic cases can turn into clusters. Clusters can turn into community transmission, and community transmission can lead to overwhelmed health systems. We saw that happen in the earlier part of the year. We continue to see that happen in some countries. We need to avoid that happening again. Uh, and we would also encourage, obviously, countries that have been through the worst and come out of it to continue to offer support to other countries, to offer advice and lessons learned, to offer their partnership, to offer their technology, and to offer their solidarity to the rest of the world. Bruce, Maria, you were there. I was just going to add to that. I think we do need to celebrate the successes where we can. Um, you know, as as this pandemic continues, you know, as Mike has said, as we, you've heard us say many times, we're not out of the woods. We do have a long way to go. The virus has plenty of room to move, but we have tools in place that, that really work. You know, we have tools in place that can um, show that you can safely, you know, break chains of transmission to reduce transmission. Um, in, in places which saves lives. And I think it's important that we do celebrate the successes safely, 
please you know, make sure that any type of uh, gatherings that happen are done in a very safe way, um, you know, where you still have your physical distancing and you have all the measures in place. Um, but I do think we need to highlight and support each other in um, sharing the stories of what has worked. I think many people are really in difficult positions right now. Um, I think many people, individuals, governments, you know, everyone is, is tired. Um, and seeing resurgence in many places can be um, very difficult to handle mentally, physically, um, but we will get through this. And I think showing how you can get through this, showing what works in all of the steps. I think, as, as Dr. Tedros has said, you know, the foundation of what we have, and what I was so impressed with when, when we were in, when Bruce and I and, and the international team were in um, China in February, was looking at the foundations of, of pub this public health infrastructure, the systems in place that are set up to deal with infectious diseases, a system in place for surveillance, a workforce that was ready and trained to do active case finding. And we're seeing this in many, many countries now. It's not just China now. To see this strong workforce for lab, for testing, for getting samples back, uh, getting test results back very quickly, um, to have infrastructure and a workforce in place, to have isolation uh, take place in not only medical facilities for severe patients or pe people who are at risk of developing severe disease, but to have mild patients cared for in community centers, um, to see uh, community workers who are out there helping to do contact tracing, helping to do um, information and bringing packages to individuals who are in quarantine. You know, there's an entire system that's in place that was activated in China and is being activated in many, many countries now. Um, and I do think, again, to say, let's celebrate the successes where we can, not become complacent because it's not over, but be at the ready. Um, and I think uh, that is a positive thing. So we look forward to more celebrations of success uh, in the sharing of knowledge across the world. Bruce, would like to add something? Yeah, thank you, Fidela. Um, and thanks, Mike, for the opportunity just to reflect on a little bit of what today may mean in terms of what we've seen uh, in China passing this milestone. It's an important one, but as Mike said, uh, um, 20 days without that internal transmission doesn't mean we don't have virus, right, and, and, and staying alert. But it provides an opportunity to reflect a little bit on what we saw when we were in China. And I think three things were particularly striking that are helpful at this point um, in, 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 in this, uh, in this, in this uh, pandemic. Um, the first was just the investment. Maria referred to this in the public health infrastructure at the national level, at the state level that we went to, um, uh, province level, pardon me, and then as we got into the municipalities and right down to the community level, there was a public health infrastructure right through all levels of the country that could talk to it, uh, uh, the different pieces and could move information, move learnings, and some things were particularly striking. Uh, they could update their national guidance in a country of over a billion people every week and get that right out through their system so people could stay current. It, it, it was very, very striking um, when you got out to those peripheral levels and saw just how up-to-date they were and they had the latest information on how to track and, 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 and deal with this disease. But I think probably more striking were two other things that we saw. Um, the first was uh, of, of those, or the second thing overall, was just the sense of individual responsibility that we saw in the Chinese people. Um, when you travel around the country for three weeks and uh, 
uh, you're staying in hotels, you're traveling in trains, you're in restaurants or various places, socially distanced, <laughs> very distant often. But you do meet um, a lot of people, a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, Chinese individuals, and their sense of responsibility for keeping the world safe, keeping their community safe, for doing the right thing was, was, was probably the most striking thing we saw, that sense of collective responsibility. Um, and when you would talk about the sacrifices that were being made, it was their duty, um, both for their own country and, and, and globally, which, which was, was, was so impressive. And then the third thing we saw, I think uh, Maria might remember, that was uh, so striking was in, in many of the municipalities and provinces that we were in, um, cases were at that point starting to come down in some provinces down to quite low levels. And we would ask, well, what's happening and what, what next to the mayors or the governors of these big provinces and cities? And they would say, well, and, and we heard it every single place we went. They said, well, we're buying ventilators and we're building more beds and we're doing this, we're doing that. There was, and, and we were just struck by the incredible effort to build additional capacity and preparedness uh, to be able to deal with what they uh, realized would be an ongoing threat for some time. And I think all of those things are part of the reason that we're seeing today the very low levels of transmission that, that hopefully uh, can, can, can be maintained. But it certainly won't be possible without that continuing continued dedication to all three pieces of uh, what, what was, was rather striking in terms of the response that we saw there. Thank you, Dr. Aylward. Uh, now we will go to Jeremy Lange from Radio France International. Jeremy, can you hear me? Jeremy, I think we lost you. Second attempt? No, no, here you can hear me, I think. <laughs> Jeremy, please go ahead and I, I guess you are Excellent. asking in French. Uh, I can ask it in English. Uh, answer in French is always welcome, but uh, uh, English will be fine. Um, a question about the, the French government is uh, considering uh, reducing the quarantine period from 14 days to uh, probably seven days. Uh, one of the reasons is that it could help uh, people who are contaminated and their contacts uh, to respect more the quarantine. Uh, what is your opinion about that? Does it make any sense on an epidemiological point of view? Maria will respond to this question. Yes, thank you. Thank you, thank you for the question. Yes, um, I've heard this as well. Um, but just to say that uh, the quarantine period is the period in which time people contacts of confirmed patients need to be separated from others. Um, the 14 days is based on what we know as the incubation period, which is a time of exposure to the time it takes to develop symptoms. And for most people, the average time is between five and six days. But the upper bound of that is around 14 days, is 14 days. Um, and so that's why we make the, the quarantine period 14 days. We also have been asked by our member states and by everyone to, to, to have a non-test-based quarantine period because it is very difficult globally um, to have a large number of tests be done, and I, we know everyone knows that testing capacity is increasing. Um, we have a 14-day quarantine period, which is this, this, this set um, based on all of the data that we have seen. Um, we initially had suggested and required a test to be done at the end of that quarantine, quarantine day period, but we recently removed that as a requirement. It still can be done. We are also asked by a number of countries if that quarantine period can be reduced. Can it be reduced to 10 days? Can it be reduced to 7 days? Can it be reduced to 5 days? And many countries are considering that 
And I, my understanding of the countries that are doing that are looking at reducing the quarantine period, but then also adding in testing again. And so the point is, is that when you have a quarantine period, your, case, your contacts of confirmed cases are isolated, are taken out, are, are put in a separate facility so that they don't have the opportunity to pass the virus onto somebody else. Um, and based on the information that we have, the median incubation period is five to six days, but it can go up to 14 days. And so to make sure that we break chains of transmission, our upper bound of that 14 days still holds based on the data that we have seen. Thank you, Maria. We will move now to Lara uh, from Sao Paulo, Folha de Sao Paulo. Lara, can you hear me? Um, yes, hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, um, very well. Go ahead, please. I'm actually from, from Globo in Brazil, but uh, never mind. Yeah. So my question is, um, you mentioned the, the communications and the, the scientific evidence and the importance of the of agencies such as the CDC. But my question is, what happens when governments um, send controversial messages to the population? I mean, um, here in Brazil, we, we've had um, sort of shutdowns and lockdowns for the population. Um, our schools are still closed mostly, but our president has repeatedly been seen outside without wearing a mask or he's advocated for, for example, chloroquine, which um, does not have a scientific basis for treatment of COVID-19. So what happens? I mean, where does the population stand in the middle of that? Thank you, Lara. Um, Dr. Ryan will take this question. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, I think we've had uh, many questions over the weeks uh, about uh, Brazil and, and, and government policies and others in Brazil. I think the the Brazil is a very large country. Uh, the state governors have, and the state-based uh, public health uh, authorities have been very involved in, in offering advice and support to communities. Then you have the, the national government, the Pan American Health Organization, PAHOR, our American regional office, and ourselves. So uh, citizens uh, in Brazil and many countries are able to look and seek information from, from, multiple, from multiple sources. Um, and uh, uh, certainly I think it is important more than uh, it is good to be in a position where you can have absolute trust in, in any given government, but it's also important that people seek multiple sources of information. Uh, Maria, as Maria said, maybe there are too many sources of information at times, and that makes it very difficult for people to decide what is credible. But it is very important that governments, and again, it's going back to my previous answer, uh, sometimes uh, messages are sent to communities that, that may have uh, political overtones, but building trust. Uh, I remember a, a communications expert once saying to me, "It takes years to build trust and seconds to lose it." Um, and I think that's the issue. Uh, good governments build trust with communities by only providing them with verified, evidence-based information. Because if things go wrong, communities will understand. But if communities perceive that they're getting information that is being politically manipulated or that is being managed in a way that is, that is distorting evidence, then uh, unfortunately that comes back to roost. Uh, that comes back at a government politically at a later stage. I think that has been the case uh, around the world and, and for many different disasters over time. Transparency, honesty, uh, admitting error, admitting uncertainty 
in fact, highlighting uncertainties and then highlighting where certainties do exist. People can take it. People can absorb that. Uh, people are smart and people are realistic and people aren't looking for magical answers and they're not looking for unicorns. They, they understand. We all live in the real world. And in trying to present uh, oversimplified, uh, simplistic solutions for people is not a long-term strategy that wins with populations. So we would call for transparency, consistency, honesty, and admission of uncertainty, admission of error, uh, and I believe that builds trust with communities. And it doesn't matter whether you're a local official, a state official, a national official, or a global official. Those same principles, uh, I think, pertain. And we would call on all governments uh, to look at that and ensure that their strategy for communicating with citizens is sustainable, is honest, uh, and is committed to the best interests of their citizens. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. The next question goes to Stephanie Nebehe from Reuters. Stephanie, can you hear me? Stephanie? Yeah. Yes, thanks. Sorry. Thank you, Fadela. Um, a question, please, um, on, uh, on vaccines. Um, in China, um, the um, vaccinations there are being expanded um, to, you know, med beyond medical staff, diplomats, etc., under this emergency program that began in July. Um, our understanding is phase three data is not available, and I wondered how concerned WHO might be about that vaccination proceeding on a wider basis without the data being available, and whether WHO is in touch with Chinese authorities to obtain that phase three data, please. Thank you. Dr. Swaminathan will uh, respond. Thank you. Thank you for that question. I could uh, start, and Mary Angela might want to add a little bit on the regulatory aspects. Um, as we have been um, saying in the past, there are clear criteria for how drugs and vaccines are evaluated, new drugs and vaccines are evaluated before they are introduced into the population. And when we're talking about vaccines against COVID, we have to be mindful of several things. One, that they're being developed at the fastest speed that we've ever known before, so unprecedented speed. Second, that we're using a number of new platforms, a number of platforms that have not been used in humans before. We're talking here about the RNA and DNA vaccines and also some of the uh, viral vectors that have not been deployed at scale. And, and then, of course, we're talking about using it not on millions of people, but potentially on billions of people. So we have to put into perspective um, the, the introduction of a vaccine, given these, these new circumstances that have not been um, in, the, in the past, and then evaluating the risks and benefits of, of introducing a vaccine before we have adequate data on both efficacy and safety. So efficacy, one would be able to assess based on, on vaccinating a significant number of people, half given the vaccine, the other half not given the vaccine or given a placebo, and then looking at the number of infections in these two groups, and you expect a, a reduction of at least 50% uh, in the vaccinated group. Safety is a little more complex because safety involves both immediate side effects, which are quite common with many vaccines. So you may have fever, you may have pain at the local site or swelling, which usually subsides in a couple of days. But then you need longer follow-up for 
side effects, particularly unexpected side effects, which you, you may see only over weeks and months. And so we would expect to see a follow-up uh, again for a significant period of time to look both for long-lasting protection and, long, and, and safety signals that may pick up later. So that is why WHO uh, has these criteria, and we'd like to see data on both safety and efficacy in significant numbers of people. So the phase one and two studies are usually done in a few dozen individuals. And while these give you some idea about safety and also an idea about the immunogenicity of the vaccine, what we are really looking for is signals for efficacy and safety in, in during longer follow-up. Now, having said that, national regulatory authorities do have the, the mandate and the power to, to allow uh, use of medical products within their own jurisdictions uh, under certain conditions. And an emergency, a pandemic, is, is one of those conditions where um, national regulatory authorities may consider uh, this type of use. Um, hopefully, this is done under monitored conditions. It's done under what we call the emergency use of products uh, under research settings where, where people who are given the vaccine are followed regularly, are assessed at periodic intervals where data is collected and can be used. But this is only a temporary solution. And the solution, the longer-term solution, is really completing those phase three trials which will provide the confidence for those vaccine candidates to be actually used in the, in the millions of doses. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Swaminathan. Um, Dr. Simao, I think, has something to add. Just a quick uh, additional information that WHO's office in China and WHO headquarters has been working with the regulatory authorities in China we're in direct contact and, and sharing information and the requirements for international approval of, of vaccines. So we're working together with the Chinese authorities on this. Thank you, uh, Dr. Simao. I think we are coming up to the hour, uh, so I think we will take uh, one more question and I will come back to Gunilla. Gunilla, can you hear me? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, please. Go ahead, Gunilla. Okay. Thanks, Vanilla. Thank you for taking my question. Uh, my question concerns schools, uh, mainly in Europe. They have all restarted now. But there is a certain confusion um, among teachers uh, how to deal with the situation, because you will have children who have coughing or stomach ache, and, and at what point should they actually send them home? At what point, where is the limit for when you should close a class or even a whole school? It should be useful with some more guidance on this. Uh, do you have some? Thanks. Maria, please. Thanks, and thank you for the question. So it's, it's really important that um, when schools are, are considering opening up and, and we have the safe resumption of schools is that there are plans in place specifically to address an example of what you just asked in your question. What are the plans in place if you have children that are ill, if you have children um, who have respiratory illness or have fever or are suspected to have COVID-19 or something else? Is there a plan in place within the school itself to say this is a, a case that we're concerned about or a potential case that we're concerned about and to have how the child should be cared for? Um, and then if that individual is a case, what is the plan around contact tracing and what do you do in terms of um, if a classroom should be closed or if there should be a partial closure or not? 
Um, WHO, with our partners, with UNICEF and, and with others, we have a technical advisory group that is, is helping to advise us on educational institutions, specifically around these considerations. Um, what needs to be taken into account when schools open or how schools open and how they can open safely. Um, and I think one of the big things is, is this plan in place to be able to quickly detect a case and then what do you do if this individual is an actual case? Um, and those plans should be outlined very clearly. What are the actual steps that need to be done in terms of alerting the school nurse um, or the parents, tests that need to be done, the follow-up of contact tracing, informing of the, the class itself and the parents themselves. Um, we are seeing schools that are uh, uh, putting into place um, different measures within the class itself, keeping classes in, in these bubbles, um, so to speak, so that the, the class itself stays together and they don't mix with other classrooms. Um, we are seeing differences in the way that they are approaching this by age, with the youngest children um, having a certain type of um, activities that they have to do per day, making sure that they do their hand hygiene, uh, making sure that they're well informed, older children making sure that they have their physical distancing and hand hygiene and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it is very critical that these plans are clear and that it's communicated not only to the staff of the schools, but the children themselves and also the parents. Um, because as the situation evolves, it's really important to know what to do and when to do it. Maybe I could yeah, just add, because I think for, for a lot of parents, uh, it really comes down to understanding from the school authorities and from the health authorities what's going to happen if my kid gets sick. What's going to happen if there's a suspected case in the school, uh, which is very different to a confirmed case. And it's, it's really important that authorities communicate that clearly and that it's, it, it's clearly laid out to parents uh, and you said it in, in your question, if my child has the sniffles or has a mild fever, does that mean they shouldn't go to school and they should wait home and be tested? What are the areas? And I think sometimes uh, lives are very busy for people nowadays and, and parents do want to understand the rules of the game, how this is going to work out. Uh, and yes, the, the schools have many things in place in terms of pods and cohorting, and it's very important that parents understand that. More importantly, that children understand why the system works that way. But for the decision to send my child to school or not, what's going to happen? Will I be contacted by the authorities? There's an element of stigma. People feel fearful if my kid gets sick and then the whole class is sent home. Does that mean that we're going to be pariahs in the neighborhood? So people have a lot of concerns that bubble underneath the, the processes. And the more that schools communicate with um, parents and the more that parents understand what's going to happen if, and the more the public health authorities come in and intervene when there is a confirmed case, and it's very clear that the school doesn't have to go through this process alone. It's not just down to the schools. The schools have prepared a lot. They've brought kids back. But it's also important that public health authorities are there to work with schools so it's clear immediately when there is an incident, an event or a case or a cluster, that the public health authorities come and explain to everyone what's going to happen next. And it's extremely important that we don't see stigma arising 
from the fact that a child is diagnosed or confirmed with uh, coronavirus. Anybody can get this disease and anybody can carry this disease symptomatically or asymptomatically and it is not the fault of a child that they have this disease. And it's, I think particularly we've seen this in other elements of community practice and we've seen health workers been stigmatised because of COVID. It's really important now we don't stigmatise our children over this or the families of people who have a, a COVID positive case. I think Maria has something to add. Yeah, it's not about the schools. I want to clarify something. So there was a question that was asked by Jeremy about the French government and, and the question about quarantine. Uh, I answered the question as the quarantine, it relates to the quarantining of contacts of confirmed cases. There are other ways in which the word quarantine is used, so I just want to make sure that my answer is specific to that. What WHO recommends is a quarantine period, so these are contacts of confirmed cases of 14 days. Mm -hmm. And I was referring to the incubation period of when somebody goes from exposure to when they develop symptoms. On average, it's between five and six days, but it can go up to 14 days, which is why we make that 14-day period. We are always looking at the evidence of the incubation period coming from all different countries um, and looking at if that can be modified and, and if so, can be modified with the addition of testing or whatnot. So we are looking at that, but right now, and it continues to remain a quarantine day period of 14 days. I did see a recent review that has looked at the incubation period, um, saying that the mean incubation period, depending on the country, ranges from somewhere between two days and 10 days the mean incubation period of two days to 10 days. So the 14-day upper bound is really um, a robust number to really prevent the potential for onward transmission. So I just wanted to clarify that because uh, we were having a little debate among here about the actual question itself. So I want to be very clear. Mm -hmm. I and could I also just, just put on this say, uh, we also advise that people who travel and travel internationally are travelers. They're not contacts. They may be coming from a country that has a higher incidence. So people who are known contacts of confirmed cases should not travel. Uh, so people who are traveling, by definition, are not contacts. So they're not the same category as Maria spoke about. Now, governments and people have to manage a very complex issue here. Uh, managing two weeks self-isolation or restricted movement when people arrive in a country is for a business person, for someone going home to see family. That, that's quite an imposition. Uh, but those individuals are coming from an area of perceived risk in another country. They're not contacts of COVID. Uh, and therefore, governments are within their rights, if they want to, to reduce the time of observation that those individuals are in specific self-quarantine or self-restricted movement. That doesn't mean that the person loses responsibility to report symptoms if they get them. So I think that's a flexible number, and it's about the, the level of imposition of, of, of it, uh, it, it's difficult for people to implement and it's difficult for governments to monitor. So in a situation like a, a, this, I don't know for sure, I haven't seen the issue or the data from the, the French side of the proposal, but uh, especially if you're focusing in on containing your own major community transmission and you're focusing on ensuring that your contacts of cases are self-isolating and you want to track them most aggressively for the 14 days, if people are coming in to your country, in order to reduce the pressure on your follow-up systems, yes, countries could be 
um, uh, it would be a defensible thing to say we'll reduce the period of, of observation on travellers coming into our country. And again, each government has to set that period. Some governments are moving towards testing regimes. Some governments are, are doing different things. So I, I do think that's, uh, I won't say a flexible issue, but it's an issue in which governments have choices that they can make. But I would be, um, uh, I think Maria is correct, contacts of confirmed cases need to be uh, in quarantine for 14 days. And that's not something that we think would be advisable to reduce or adjust in any way. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike, for this clarification. And uh, to our friends, journalists, if you have still any uh, remaining question, please do reach us, uh, reach to the media team. We will make sure you have the answer. I do apologize for those who could not get their questions answered. Uh, we, um, it's already one hour um, press conference, so I will give the final uh, floor to Dr. Tedros. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Fadila. So our message uh, today is um, for countries to continue to invest in public health and primary health care while fighting COVID. And many countries who have invested in public health and primary health care uh, are responding to the uh, COVID pandemic uh, in a better way. So investment in public health and primary health care is essential. So with that, uh, thank you so much again for joining us and look forward to uh, seeing you in our uh, next uh, presser. Thank you. Thank you all. Au revoir.